Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Man, our last week in this place, isn't that crazy? Well, I'm grateful to be able to bring the message on our, on our last our last gathering here. This is a it's a it's a bittersweet thing for me. I'm excited about what the Lord's doing, and the Lord has done great things through our time in this building. So this has been really cool. Um, the, the, we're continuing in our series this week. If you weren't here last week or able to watch online or whatever, we picked back up in our our big picture series where we're doing overviews of books of the Bible. And Pastor James, I. Man, I, this week when I was preparing to do First and Second Kings, I really appreciated what he did last week with First and Second Samuel. So, um, man, it's like drinking from the proverbial fire hydrant to do one book in a Sunday. Well, we've been doing two for the past week, and, and this Sunday we'll do two. We've been looking at like how the the sort of the if you picture the Bible as a puzzle, we've been trying to get the the box top so we can make sense of the pieces. We wanted to see the big picture, and so. We wanted to do that and see how the gospel is the narrative throughout all of Scripture. So those are our two goals here. And you may have noticed that God has revealed Himself in time and space. Like in history, among real people who really lived in time and space, God has shown us, recorded for us in the Scriptures, how He interacts with real people in real time and space. Why do you think He would do that? so that we know how God acts with people, right? So we have record of it in our times of doubt, our times of sin, our times of joy, our times of rebellion, our times of failure, all of our times we can see how God is because He doesn't change. So we have thousands of years of history of God demonstrating who He is, what His character is like, what His faithfulness is like, and those types of things. And so these are really important because as we see who God is in the past, we know who God is in the present, who God will be in the future, we can make a lot more sense of our own past, present, and future, right? So that's our, our goals. We, we go through, and today we've arrived at the book of 1 Kings, and I would encourage you uh, to open your Bibles today. You may or may not be able to follow along. We're covering hundreds of years of history. Um, but what we'll see is, uh, I want you to see the message of First and Second Kings, and we'll be talking about the idea of when the levy breaks. Uh, in these books, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you may remember that each king is evaluated on whether or not he did what was good in the eyes of the Lord or whether he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't determined by how large his kingdom was, how much wealth he had, how many horses he owned, how great he was in battle. It was solely based on whether he kept faithfulness to God's covenant. That's it. It was the only thing the king was judged on, whether he did evil in the eyes of the Lord or good in the eyes of the Lord. And our time today is obviously going to be in the Old Testament, but to get our minds thinking along the right lines, I want us to just first read a brief two verses from the New Testament book of James. If you're a note taker, you can just write that down, the book of James. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you're able, I would encourage you to please stand with me. We're going to read the Word of God here. Just to get in our minds 
sort of the tone of what's going to be taking place in First and Second Kings. You may be familiar with this passage. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 say, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think you can be seated. As we've looked through the history of mankind, we've seen that this is a, we've seen a pattern of sin, have we not? Just over and over and over. Um, last week, we looked at two kings, Saul and David, and how they too had this pattern of sin. We saw that sin is no respecter of persons, even, even kings called by God and fall into sin. We see this pattern in our own lives. Everywhere we look, it's a pattern in the nations. It's a pattern in organizations, in churches, in businesses, in families, and individuals. This pattern of sin. Over time, we become complacent with God and we are lured away, as James says, by our own desires. We choose sin over God and time and time again, time after time, when we do that, we welcome destruction into our own lives. And if you've ever welcomed destruction in your own life uh, via sin, maybe you, you also understand like I know, because I've done the same thing, my sin may look different than yours, but we are, we are sinners, us, we, and we think we can manage it for a while, don't we? Don't we think we can manage our sin for a little bit? Especially when there aren't immediate consequences, right? We, we feel like, you know, hmm, well, maybe I'll just, I'll just press on into that sin a little bit. We rationalize it. You know, if, if God didn't like strike lightning, then maybe He's okay with it. Have you ever prayed something like that? God, if you don't want me to do this, stop me. I'm, I have. Knowing full well it's sin. So there are immediate consequences. And again, we think, well, you know, God's okay with it. Or, or maybe at least I have it under control. But if we're honest, in our heart of hearts, we know better than that. We build levees or walls to hold back the effects of our sin outwardly. Right? We work out. We dress well. We put on a plastic smile. We want everyone else to think everything is okay. And we gather sort of things to ourselves to entertain, keep our mind off of our own sin. We distract ourselves so that we um, don't sit alone in the silence of our own hearts and allow God to expose our hearts to us, right? We, we do these things so that we numb ourselves. These are, these are levees we build against seeing what sin is doing in our lives. And again, in our hearts, if we're honest, we know that those levees, those walls will really never hold. Um, not against something like sin, man. Sin is vicious. It's like kudzu. No wall can contain it, right? Um, the physical destruction, you know, we can, we can hold back for a while. It's like the, if you ever seen the portrait of Dorian Gray or read the book, we can, we can hold back the, the looks of the physical destruction, but inwardly, we're already being destroyed, right? Our relationship with God is already being affected. It's taking, taking place. And so we may be able to delay it for a while, but we're already separated from God. I'm going to show you a, a slide here. You guys remember Hurricane Katrina? 
What Those of you who are around during that time or remember the news stories, you may remember during Hurricane Katrina, when it was approaching New Orleans, people were, were seeing warning signs. Man, the sto- it's like coming, and we saw it on the news. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It was just, just off the coastline. You know, things were looking kind of rocky. Um, sometimes we see cracks in the forms uh, or in the walls of security that we think are holding our sin at bay. Um, but like with Katrina, the levee broke. It broke, and they were devastated. Um, you know, again, as I said, evil builds in nations and organizations and churches and companies and families and individuals, and the wages of our sin come rushing in. But what we get paid for our sin will break these paper mache levees that we build for ourselves. And, you know, we're devastated when this happens. Maybe you've experienced that, that sort of thing in your life. We thought our sin would be without consequence. Man, we were wrong. We were wrong. So, you know, as the book of Hosea says, we sow the wind, we reap the whirlwind, right? So I wanted to talk to you today about what happens in the book of First and Second Kings, these were originally one book in the Hebrew Scriptures, when the levee breaks. Uh, we wor- learned last week that there was a sign that sort of the structure of the levee was, was not going to withhold the price of, of sin. It was about to burst through the first great king, David, when David dove into his own desires, did he not? The, the greatest king Israel had ever seen also went after his own desires, and the nation was devastated. Well, in an act of mercy, God raises another king. He allows David's son Solomon to come to the throne. He's going to give the nation and the people yet another chance. So the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings cover Solomon's abundant blessings. If you're familiar with the life of Solomon, no one was more blessed than Solomon. Um, first Chapter 1, Solomon prevails in a dispute over who's going to succeed David. God raises him up. Chapter 2, David gives his charge to Solomon after David's death. Chapter 3, Solomon prays for wisdom, and God grants it. And um, there are scholars who believe, and I'm among them, there are different opinions, but um, that the pre-incarnate Jesus actually visits Solomon to give Solomon the gift of wisdom. God blessed Solomon in incredible ways, and then the nation, therefore, was gifted because they had a great king, who was following after the Lord. God had blessed him. God had therefore blessed them. And and Solomon's politics, he was shrewd, right? He consolidated power. The uh, kingdom and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were joined at that time. Uh, He had international trade with surrounding nations. He brought great peace and prosperity under his leadership. Then chapter 4, if you're following along in your Bible, chapter 4, verses 24 through 25 say, they describe... Uh, Solomon's dominion here. He says, For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon." Now, just keep that picture of peace, prosperity, safety, all these things in your mind. After the dedication of the temple in chapter 8, if you want to flip over to chapter 8, 
verse 66 in chapter 8 says, On the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes. Here again is the descriptor, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Man, the nation was prospering. The people were great under Solomon as king. And underneath and at the core, the foundation of Solomon's blessings was Solomon's personal relationship with God. He was a God-fearing king. It's, it's a love for the Lord that will cause a man or a woman to want what God wants. God told Solomon to ask for something. What did Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Why? so that he may shepherd God's people, right? This is the heart of a man who is not focused upon himself. Um, this is a, a, he has a loving relationship with God at this moment. Um, we can have a, by the way, side note, you can have a loving relationship with God. We'll get to that in just a little while. You know, they say that um, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that's true. I think if you don't have a healthy fear of the Lord, you don't know enough about Him. Um, so, but that's the beginning of wisdom. I think the fullness of wisdom is when we move to a love relationship. We don't, we don't lose the healthy fear of God, but we move to a love relationship with God because the heart of love is a relationship with God. Um, not only changes what we do, but it changes what we want to do, Right? Um, so ultimately, it's because Solomon loved God that he chose to ask for wisdom. He wanted to bless the people of God. And then God responds to his request in chapter 3. I know that's backing up just a bit, but the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, it says. Uh, and there's a lot more that we could say about the splendor and the blessings of the amazing situation that resulted from Solomon being king. But I want you to have that picture in your mind. Peace, prosperity, safety, joy, it says. It says in chapter 8 that the glory of the Lord filled the temple and Solomon dedicates the temple through prayer and worship of God. But things began to take a little bit of a turn. There's a watershed moment. And if Pastor James were preaching today, he'd go over here to the keys. He might play a, play a somber tone, right? An ominous tone of storms building in the background, I, I, won't do, I can't do that, <laughs> but you can picture it in your mind. There's a storm building. Yet again in chapter 9, the Lord appears to Solomon and warns Solomon against idolatry. Strange. Things are great. Things are going really good. The glory of the Lord has filled the temple just in the previous chapter. Why would God, during a time like that, Go to Solomon and warn him about idolatry. Why would he do that? Why would God go to the wisest man who had ever lived, the most prosperous man who had ever lived, in a time of peace and the people are prospering in one chapter, and in the very next chapter say, beware of idolatry. You know why God would do that? God knows the heart of man. God knows us. God knows Solomon better than Solomon knows Solomon. The wisest man on earth does not know his own heart as well as God knows his heart. Um, and no matter how great, again, the nation was doing great. No matter how great, let me tell you, family, no matter how great your most recent experience with God has been, let me encourage you, don't rely on your experiences. 
for good or for bad. Um, base your security of your commitment to God or judge the depth of your relationship with God not based on your most recent experience. Some great feeling at a worship gathering or you go to a conference and you come out stoked or if you go to a summer camp and you feel really good, a memory of a pastime of great commitment and clarity in your life. Man, experiences are good and can be fine, don't get me wrong, but they're clearly not enough even for the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. And so, man, if our security and depth of our, our relationship with God is based on our experiences. Let me ask you a question. What happens when our experiences change? What happens when it begins to rain? When the storms begin to gather and your relationship with God is based on your most recent experience, then it shakes your relationship with God, doesn't it? Well, we've got to base our relationship with God on the gospel and the gospel alone, and I'll get to that. In just a little while. Chapter 9 again records some of Solomon's business affairs. Then chapter 10 provides a summary of Solomon's wisdom and wealth. Let's just read that real quick. Uh, verse 21, chapter 10. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All of the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships from Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. This is amazing. And it may sound familiar from last week because David experienced this, this sort of wealth, but Solomon's was even more. Um, sadly, like his father before him, Solomon is going to crash to the ground. His outward levies, his wealth, his peace, his women, his parties, his gathering things unto himself, these, these paper walls cannot hold back the torrent of sin. So the first lesson I want us to, to see this morning, if you're a note taker, if you have an, an outline weekly there, don't ignore the warnings. Despite your current circumstance, you may think everything's doing fine. I haven't seen immediate uh, repercussions of my sin. I, God's okay with it or I have it under control. Do not ignore the warnings. You know, it's interesting, Solom Solomon, this is like an ominous, weird thing. Uh, in the very first chapter of the book, in verse 52, Solomon predicted seemingly his own downfall. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. And so let me tell you, family, uh, destruction, spiritual death is what happens when we ignore the warnings of the effects of sin that are building behind these fake levees that we build for ourselves. Again, it's very much like the weeks leading up to Katrina. Man, we saw that hurricane just circling in toward New Orleans, and they were like, man, your levees are not built for this. They cannot hold. Even this weak storm, Katrina wasn't a strong storm compared to other storms. The levees could not hold. They ignored, the, you know, this New Orleans is a town of fun. Isn't it Mardi Gras? And they got freedom. And, you know, so they ignored the danger signs that the levees wouldn't hold. Man, and the consequences were devastating. Um, and so for Israel, Solomon was like that. He ignored the warnings. 
all the excitement, the wonder, the enthusiasm. Look at all the stuff I have. Look how big my kingdom is. We're in a time of peace. But God is saying, Solomon, beware of the idolatry of your heart. And Solomon ignores, and that leads us to the next thing. Even the mighty can fall. Even the mighty can fall. Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived outside of Jesus, even us, as super wise as we are, sarcasm, right? Uh, To understand where Solomon went wrong, let's actually go back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy for just a second. God lays out some things for his kings. It says this, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Here we go. Caveats. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to turn to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Time out. Do you know Solomon? God lists three things that an Israelite king should not do. He should not acquire horses for himself, take many wives, or accumulate excessive silver and gold. In the space of two chapters, Solomon blows all three of those. The wisest man who ever lived checks all wrong boxes in God's economy. And look at the consequences because Solomon didn't listen to the warnings. Solomon's rebellion against God tears down the the kingdom away from his family. God promises to do it. God promises to take the kingdom away from Solomon. And that's precisely what happens over the next... Six chapters. The northern ten tribes under the leadership of a man named Jeroboam break away from the southern tribe of Judah who stays under the rule of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And the once great united nation standing in peace and prosperity and wealth is now broken broken up into two little weak nations that become one another's worst enemies, man. They start hating each other. Um, now, the remainder of 1 Kings is about these two factions, uh, the Hebrew people sort of infighting. And the first domino that fell was King Solomon. And then the rest, man, the, peop- the people fell because of it. So what can we learn then uh, from 1 Kings? What are the lessons? Uh, I think the main takeaway for me as I prepared this message was that only God is God and we are not. Only God is God, and we are not. You say, well, uh, if you're a a Gen Xer like me, well, duh, (laughs) right? Of course God is God. But man, there's some major implications and repercussions of that fact for us. One reason, one major implication of the fact that only God is God and we are not is that God doesn't make idle threats. God is not someone to be trifled with. 
God let Solomon, the wisest, most powerful man in the world, bear the repercussions of his sin. Take note of that. doesn't matter who you are. God is not someone to treat lightly. Man, I, I, I'm preaching that to myself. When, when will I wake up and realize that only God is God and I'm not? Uh, well, Solomon, uh, that's Solomon. Thousands of years ago, uh, so let's make it personal. Again, Solomon was the wisest man of his day, arguably the wealthiest man of his, wealthiest man of his time. He enjoyed God's favor in lots of ways, yet his legacy went up in, in smoke or went, was buried in a flood, uh, so to speak. Um, he was lured away by his own desires. He thought he could manage it, right? Let's, let's, let's put that in our laps. Are you ever lured away by your own desires? I mean, you, know, you don't see immediate consequences. Maybe God's okay with it. Maybe you have it under control. If in our, you know, in our hearts, if we're honest, we know better than that. We know better than that. Solomon built levees or walls of control to keep the effects of his sin back. A great palace, great wisdom, worldwide fame, wealth. In his heart, if he were honest, he knew that those things were just things. Those walls could never hold. Not against something like sin. Man. The physical destruction was one thing, but the spiritual destruction was already taking place. Let's put that in our own laps. Let me encourage you to not ignore the warnings. We're a lot like Solomon. We're not even as wise as Solomon. We're not even kings, right? Let's take a look at Solomon and remember <laughs> that only God is God. Uh, let me encourage you to write this down if you're a note taker. Rebellion either ends in repentance and thus forgiveness and healing and restoration or in God's judgment upon us. Rebellion either ends in repentance or in God's judgment upon us. And you know, 1 Kings 18.21, a prophet named Elijah spoke to the people who were trying to both serve Yahweh God, the real God who's actually there, and a false God. And his question to them is the same question I would ask us this morning. He says this, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, that is, if Yahweh is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? You know, living a life in limbo, serving God and mixing in non-Christian doctrine or beliefs or serving God and serving yourself or serving God and embracing your sin. These things lead to destruction. The levee will break. If the Lord is God, reach life church. Let's follow him. Uh, he alone can deliver. He alone can save us from ourselves. But notice it says that the people didn't even answer the question. Their silence is telling. They will not follow the Lord. Well, let that be a lesson for us. Being of two opinions, part for the Lord, part against the Lord is really one opinion, isn't it? It's an opinion against the Lord. You, we cannot call Him Lord and tell Him no. 
at any given moment. Uh, so the people sadly had made their choice. Man, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Well, let's briefly turn to the second part of this epic, 2 Kings. The levy has broken in 1 Kings, and in 2 Kings we'll see the result. The people are drowning in sin. They are drowning in sin. Um, again, 1 Kings talks about like this inevitable disaster that's coming. The levies cannot hold, and I hope that was a wake-up call for us. But what if you're in here today or you're watching online, you're watching this later, and your levy has already broken. You are seeing the effects of your sin. What, what are you going to do if you are already drowning in sin? Uh, I want to talk about that. I want to address that this morning. Uh, a lot of us um, may feel like, okay, I have blown it. Now what? You feel like God's, God's going to leave me to drown, right? You may, and and to, to, be, to be quite honest, um, we'd probably deserve that if God left. We, we put ourselves in, under, under the waters of sin, right? Um, and this is one reason I'm so glad that God continues to record the history of the Hebrew people in the book of 2 Kings. What is going to teach us what to do if we're drowning in sin? So let me just... Just tell you real quick, Second uh, Kings is a long book. Anybody ever read Second Kings? It's long. There are lots of things in it, man. It covers hundreds of years of history. There are 29 kings between Israel and Judah um, you know, because the nation was divided in halves now. They're, it also mentions kings surrounding the nation. Some, some of the kings' names sound the same. I, I have trouble keeping it all straight. Maybe you do too. Thankfully, we are not the first people to plow this ground. Let me recommend some resources to you. Somebody that was really helpful to me today was Pastor Mark Dever, Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And man, um, he's the one that I saw this analogy of breaking levees and uh, drowning in sin. They came from Dever. So if you're looking for sort of a sweeping study and how to digest these big things, I would recommend uh, Dever's books. He has... Uh, uh, Promises made and promises kept, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, I have some disagreements with Dever, but man, I, those are great, great resources. Um, but today, we, we won't walk through all the detailed three, you know, hundreds of years of history of Second Kings, but I want us to get the message of the book as we, I'll, I'll try to hurry. I'm doing my, I'm doing my best. Uh, so, so listen fast, hang in there with me. Um, while Second Kings is, is kind of varied in scope and it's, it can be all over the place. One clear thing that we can see is that the overall direction is a downward spiral. And it's like the people are circling the drain, man. It is that, that when the levee breaks and sin pours in, it's not good. And if you're seeing the effects of your own sin in your life, you know it's not good. This is really not a good situation. The people are, um, see, we see that they're carried off into slavery again, some into Bab Babylon, some into Assyria. Some even chose go back to go back to slavery in Egypt. Talking about the worst day. <laughs> they even chose Egypt. Um, so remember, the nation is divided between two kingdoms. And this story goes back and forth between the two kingdoms, talking about the kings. This guy did right in the eyes of the Lord. This guy did evil in the eyes of the Lord, that sort of thing. But I want us to get a summary, just a feel of 2 Kings rather than walking through all those things. There's um, In the middle chapters, I want us to read some passages that give us sort of the feel. Now remember what had happened in 1 Kings when Solomon was reigning. Peace, prosperity, safety, 
everything's great. Every person has their fig tree, so to speak, right? Now, let's read in 2 Kings. Um, we'll be in chapter 16 right here, 2 Kings 16. Let's look at 1 through 4, and then we're going to read several passages here, just in the middle of 2 Kings to get the feel. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills under every green tree. And under Ahaz's rule, the southern kingdom saw the fallout. Again, when Solomon did right, the kingdom was blessed. When Ahaz uh, did poorly the kingdom was destroyed. But the northern kingdom is even worse than the southern kingdom. This is a really long section, so like drink some mental coffee here that we're going to read. The, the northern kingdom was even worse than the southern kingdom. The levee breaks, the sin floods in, and I think here gets to the heart of the message of 2 Kings. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 18. Follow along with me if you can. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalomancer, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Verse 6, In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the harbor, the river of Gozen, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people, listen here, listen close. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the king of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. Verse 12, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I command your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14. But they would not listen, but were stubborn 
as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised His statutes and His covenants that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning the Lord, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore, verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Do you see the stark difference? When the people follow the Lord and when the people do not follow the Lord, sin is having its way and God snuffs His own people out. Let that fact not be lost on them. This, this should concern us. Well, um, there's some things, other things here in bright spots here and there, but it, overall, it's, like I said, people are circling the dream and it's a downward spiral. You know, to sum up the book of 2 Kings, God had blessed the people greatly. He delivered them time and time again, yet the people chose wickedness and God brought punishment upon the people that rejected Him. Yet, hope remains if the people will repent. Notice God's calling of repentance was not just for the king, but, of, but for the people. Um, so the question that we all face is this. When we stand before God's righteous judgment, who will bear the punishment for our sins? For the Israelites, the king could not do that. Someone will bear the punishment for our sins. Someone will, unless you have a righteous substitute. There is one. Um, because of that, there's hope for restoration. If that's a, the point in your outline that's next. If the people will repent, there would be hope. God without fail restores His people time and time again when they repent. But restoration only comes when they repent. You may be familiar that repentance is a military term. It means about face. It means going, turning away from yourself and your sin and turning toward the Lord accepting His offer of grace and being restored. Repentance is the key to not drowning in your sin. What's the most effective thing to do if you're drowning? Get out of the water. Get out of the water, man. If you are drowning in sin, stop sinning. It's the first thing to do. Plug the drain, right? Get out of the water. It's the first thing to do. Maybe you have things in your life that you are unsure are not sin. You know, maybe you see this pattern of destruction in your life. You're like, I don't know what's causing this. I don't know why I leave a wake behind me of broken relationships or, or what, whatever it is. Let me encourage you, get before the Lord. Ask Him to reveal your heart and I guarantee that there is sin causing the destruction in your life. And I'm going to encourage you, get out of the water. Stop sinning. Forsake your sin. They're killing you. They're killing your relationship with God. They're killing your relationship with others. Um, I'm not talking about works-based salvation. I'm just saying get out of the water, right? I'm not saying that it saves you. I'm saying stop killing yourself 
and others. Um, we really can change, though. Reach Life Church, we want to live out the gospel together. Um, this is not going to come by self-help gurus uh, that want to tell you to you you do better now by or you do uh, you make up your past wrong by doing better in the future. We should do better in the future, but that's misleading. No good you do now can make up this for the sin that you've done. That's a lie. It's a lie. I don't care if it comes from Chopra or Oprah. That's a lie. Right? I don't care if it comes from Jordan Peterson or somebody on the right. It doesn't matter. Christianity is not right or left. It's a different thing. It's the gospel. It is this message right here. We need to weep no more. The wrath is on the tree. There's no more left for me. There's no more left for me. Jesus upon the cross has stood in my place. Therefore, even if I'm drowning in sin, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Stop sinning. Follow me. He'll restore us. We don't have to drown. That's tremendous news. That's the message of 2 Kings. We can be made whole if we'll repent. Jesus is faithful to keep His promises.